It's the world this week. The world this week in partnership with the Daily Beast. Craig Capitas is contributing editor for said publication. How are you? Okay, mon capitaine. Also with us, Marie Jago, reporter at uh, the international desk of a French broadsheet of record, Le Monde. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Ana Navarro Pedro is Paris correspondent for the Portuguese news weekly Visao. How are things? Uh, very well. Thank very you. well. Okay. Matthias Krupa, Paris correspondent uh, for a German publication, Die Zeit. Very well as well? Very well as well. Okay. Long weekend here in the studio. Long weekend <laughs> in the studio. Uh, you can listen, like, and subscribe. It won't be that long, though, <laughs> to the world this week. We're not listening to On Spotify, no, no, no. Apple Podcasts, and other fine streaming services. It, it was built as the main event in Jeddah, the rehabilitation of Bashar al-Assad, back at an Arab League summit for the first time in 12 years. His return, the fruit of a thaw in relations between hosts Saudi Arabia and Damascus's patrons, Iran. But the hosts had a surprise in store. Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, coming in for a speech before an audience that needs convincing. Yes, many in the room like Egypt import Ukrainian grain, but outliers aside like Morocco, they also enjoy good ties with Moscow. Zelensky, playing on his country's uh, defense of its Muslim minority, particularly after Russia's 2014 annexation of Crimea. For centuries, the Crimean Tatar have been and should remain an integral and strong part of the Muslim community of the world. But Crimea was the first to suffer from the Russian occupation. And until now, most of those who are subjected to repression in the occupied Crimea are Muslims. Marie Jago, this was uh, uh, important, uh, that, that nod to, to, to the Tatar minority uh, in Ukraine, uh, particularly because the Arab street has complained, well, why is all the attention on Ukraine and not on the Palestinians? Here he's saying, no, this is solidarity with the Muslim world. Sure, he's uh, remembering uh, something that a few people are aware of, uh, the fact that uh, Crimean Tatars have been repressed strongly uh, by uh, first Soviet authorities and nowadays since the annexation by uh, Russian authorities, by Putin regime. In fact, they were put in, in jail and they were harassed. And so, what do you make of this more broadly? Mohammed bin Salman saying, let's have a party, a welcome back party for Bashar al-Assad. Oh, <laughs> but we're also bringing Volodymyr Zelensky. Yeah, this is really a strange world indeed. But I think uh, Zelensky, we, we can say that Zelensky is supposed to go afterwards to uh, Japan. So Zelensky is trying to get uh, a lot of attention. Uh, he, he, he was in Europe uh, for a European tour recently. And uh, we, we can see that he's making a lot, lot of efforts to point uh, on this. Uh, and Navarro Pedro. Yes, well, uh, President of Ukraine is on the diplomatic offensive, literally, to get more guns and to get actually um, an increment again on the supply of guns by the West, by the Western allies. Now it's the fighter jets. He's but that's the, it's the Saudi crown prince giving him the floor in Jeddah. Why not? Uh, there will be a lots of opportunity for reconstruction of Ukraine later on. Zelensky received this week uh, BlackRock, which is this uh, hedge fund uh, that the most important in the world, uh, to whom, with whom, he, with 
with which he has signed a deal for the reconstruction of, uh, of Ukraine. But there is a lot of uh, juicy deals to be made. So why not? Craig Kapitas, when Mohammed bin Salman, because it's at his discretion that it happened. And remember, Bashar al-Assad's a captive audience in the room when, when Zelensky is speaking. Is, is this a message to Tehran? Is it a message to Moscow? Is it a message to Washington that uh, MBS is sending? I, I don't know what kind of message he's sending. I think the good news is is that the Qataris stayed in the room to hear Zelensky, and they left when uh, Assad stood, stood up to speak. Uh, plus all this, this Muslim Brotherhood stuff. Sorry, I don't buy it. 500,000 dead in the war, 7 million displaced. Uh, 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 another 7 million refugees. Uh, I believe most of those poor individuals were Muslim. Uh, so I don't, I, you know, it's glib to say this. Talking about Syria. Here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's glib to say it, but life well, is cheap. But in the Mideast, when it comes to these guys at the Arab summit, life is valueless. Actually, in the Middle East, this, um, this reintegration of Syria and of Bashar al-Assad in the League, Arab League is seen as a, as a real uh, Iran victory, um, um, Iranian victory. After the deal brokered by China between Riyadh and Tehran, mm -hmm. when they started uh, 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 diplomatic relations again, apparently from what is being said in the Middle East, the integration of Bashar al-Assad in the Arab League was part of the deal. But our, our, I'll put it to you, Matthias Krupa. Our correspondent in Jeddah says that uh, Zelensky stole the thunder of Assad today. And so, yes, we're welcoming back Assad. Victory, as you say, for, for Iran. But, but Zelensky's here's the West's poster child. Yeah. Maybe this is, to be honest, I, I, I find it hard to read uh, as well. Uh, and maybe it's just this to soften a little bit the, the introduction of uh, Bashar al-Assad uh, to have Zelensky there. Um, I mean, there are two questions. The one is, you, per, you, um, you mentioned uh, what does it mean uh, or what is the idea behind of Saudi Arabia. The other one is, what is the, what is the idea of Zelensky uh, being there? Because uh, in Japan, that's quite obvious. He is... He will go there for and ask for farther um, for farther weapons, um, but obviously in, in in Jeddah he he's not he's not for weapons. Uh, so what what is really he wants to be a player? Look, he wants to be a player. Mohammed wants to be wants on the international scene. Yeah. Other and, and guess what? He's got the bankroll to pull it off. So I don't think you. It, it's really I I think unwise to look at this. It's just what's happening. What happened in Jeddah? He's bought, you know, a golf tournament. He's trying to get the World Cup to come to Saudi Arabia. He's building all these cities thinking tourists are going to come. He's even talking about having some areas where you can drink booze. Okay, so, yeah. So he, want, he, he wants to be a player. He wants to make everyone happy. And I think it's making a lot of people unhappy, particularly the United States and the West, because guess what? We used to be the players, but you know what? We don't have any money anymore. But we spoke they with do. former um, uh, U.S. ambassador to Robert Ford, and he, they, he said they must, he said, right, today they must be delighted in Washington that Zelensky was invited to, no. to, to Jeddah. Wait for the backlash. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Volodymyr Zelensky certainly, as Marie Jago was saying, clocking up the miles. 
after Rome, Berlin, Paris, London last weekend, Ukraine's president's next destination, Japan, where he's officially announced on Sunday. The plane, by the way, dispatched to Jeddah by his French counterpart, Emmanuel Macron, who's at that G7 in Hiroshima uh, with a tribute to peace at that uh, shrine that remembers uh, the victims of the 1945 atomic bomb. G7 leaders talking at this in the same breath of tightening of sanctions with a bid to curb Russia's diamond trade. But ahead of an anticipated spring counteroffensive, it's air supremacy that Ukraine needs. France 24's team followed the territorial army in training in the southern Zaporizhia region. No one has ever fought back against an enemy like this, which has supremacy in the air as well as lots of tanks, artillery and heavy weapons. Marie-Gigo, your thoughts on, on, on that, that um, can this much vaunted spring counteroffensive work without air supremacy? Without air supremacy, no. I think that's what uh, Zelensky definitely wants. He wants jets. So he got some uh, MiG-29 uh, from Slovakia and Poland, but he would like to have uh, some F-16. And uh, America is, is holding on uh, its decision on, on this. Maybe they could give the, the authorization to European countries to uh, give some F-16 um, to Ukraine. But it's clear that uh, without an, uh, with an aerial forces, it will be very difficult to have a successful uh, counteroffensive. And you need, uh, and you need also land forces and uh, ammunition and weapons to, to go after. To, you know, to, to uh, you can't only win a, a war. Of course, but just, they, war just, the war uh, they just with, received with air, some uh, promises, promises from Germany. It, Three it billion. Doesn't mean uh, if they get some jets dollars. that they will have supremacy. That's the whole hypocrisy of its Western allies, and even the United States now they are saying. Well, after this alliance set up by, Rudish, by the, the Prime Minister of the uh, United Kingdom of international alliance of people who might supply or at least would, would fence for Ukraine yes. to have the jets, the United States answered that, well, we are not opposed, but the decision hasn't been made. And I'm quoting. Um, and uh, this means, I, I mean, it can only be read in one way, is that the United States are really considering that if they do give the green light, uh, Moscow might interpret that as, uh, as uh, being a game for hitting U.S. and European <coughs> targets. Um, so it will be a direct confrontation between Washington and Moscow, which the Americans don't want. Okay, so, so there's, public, there's public discourse, you're right, uh, mm -hmm. and there's what's happening behind the scenes. The week began with uh, first the French and the Brit British pledging to train Ukrainian pilots the UK among nations, as Anna was saying, uh, calling for a jets coalition. But when in Berlin earlier this week, UK Defense Secretary Ben Wallace qualified his country's position. First of all, Britain isn't going to donate any fighter jets uh, to Ukraine at this time. Uh, Typhoon is, we, we've been consistent in saying we're not going to deliver Typhoon Tranche 1, uh, is not a, a plane that would be suitable. Right, so it won't be Typhoons. Uh, it'll be what? <laughs> it'll be what the spookies are telling me is the word du jour, culmination, which is a military term that they're seeing that the, uh, the 
sp- intelligence agencies are now seeing taking place there, and this excites them a great deal. Culmination in military terms is when a unit cannot attack in the form it was built. So over this 1,200-kilometer front line, over the past month, you've seen Russian uh, uh, brigades uh, being reduced to company-sized attacks on smaller chunks of land. And since the start of the year, what they tell me today, 100 attacks a day and the front line have now been reduced to under 40 a day at company size. So, from what, the Russian side. No, yeah, yeah, from the Russian side. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So, what what I am I'm told what they suspect the the intelligence guys I spoke to suspect is they're kind of hedging on this plane stuff while the culmination continues. Yeah, because I, here's the follow-up yeah. question to all this. Yeah. The U.S., the latest in the last hours to announce, they too are going to train pilots. Now, everybody's saying, oh, we're not pledging planes. But what are they training them for? Obviously, planes are coming. But when? You're not going to see those. If they're, the, the culmination should be complete if, if, if it goes according to what they're saying. By the time winter comes, they may be attacking in squad. The Russians might be attacking in squad-sized units. Because the army, the Russian army, has been devastated. That's one of the plan. Yeah, I'm saying the yeah. same. I'm Come saying on. the same thing. Come on, you see no advance from the Russian army. Uh, by the way, uh, yeah. no advance. They couldn't take Kiev. They couldn't uh, succeed in their first offensive. Now that you know that, w- we see that they are completely stuck. Yeah. Now we don't know if Bakhmut is going to go to uh, Prigozhin, to Wagner. Now it's a question, because wh- why is it like this? Because Wagner is not getting the ammunition from the Russian Ministry of Defense. Can you imagine this? They are fighting, eat, eating each other. Uh, it's the Russian way, they eat their own. Yeah, and they recently, it has not been told by the media, but recently, um, it was uh, May 13. May 13 in the Bryansk region, a region very close to the uh, yeah. Ukrainian border, two helicopters and two MiG fighters were shot down. Yeah. And who shot them down? Not the Ukrainian forces, for sure, because they don't have air defense around. So they were shot down by, by the Russian uh, air defense. Can you imagine this? Nine pilots. What is that? Friendly fire? Yeah. Mm. Doesn't it, look so so bright. It's for all part of that Russian talk army. that's been going around and that the, there and, is and, a mocking movement. And the announcement for for this training coalition. So far, it's just a training coalition. But the, be, as you said, behind the behind the training coalition, there will be a jet coalition, and it is announced that the training coalition will start working within uh, within weeks not within months so which means that within months there will be there will be the there will be this uh, this coalition which is delivering um, fighter jets so things are moving more quickly maybe than uh, anyway, supposed everything has been going up by increments in this war the delivery of weapons and the escalation of uh, right. the, 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 the the dangerosity of those weapons or the 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 action of those weapons, the word is missing, but you understand yeah. what I'm saying. And uh, uh, you don't train a pilot for an F-16, for instance, in three months. It takes a year. So it means they've been trained before. Definitely. They have been, been trained. So they will be operational in two or three months, but the decision has been made before. Maybe it just needs a green light from Washington because they really realize... Uh, 
unlikely the Europeans what this means, and it, this mean, may mean a third world war. Uh, but, uh, um, I mean, it, it, the decision has been made before. Speaking of World War III, uh, there is movement, as Marie Jago was saying, in the ground war, Ukraine's military uh, scoring its biggest gains in months around the uh, eastern city of Bakhmut. Uh, both sides still bogged down, relatively speaking. Uh, both sides targeting, as we've been discussing, critical infrastructure. Uh, the war has been between Russia and Ukraine, but it is now becoming a test of firepower between superpowers. Russian-made dagger hypersonic missiles shot down early Tuesday morning over Kyiv by U.S.-made Patriot missile batteries, five out of six, one of them damaging uh, a Patriot battery, uh, one of those batteries, um, I believe, worth $1.1 billion. Uh, but, Marijigoy, it's the U.S. military might versus the Russian military might. Has this become more than just a war between Russia and Ukraine? Of course, it, it's like this for a long time now, since uh, and Russia consider this war not as a war against Ukraine, but a war against NATO, against the United States. And um, since we uh, give Ukraine weapons, uh, of course we can say that we are part of this conflict. But, uh, I mean, um, Russia is in a very dire situation. We can see it from what you said, that the, the dagger was a missile, a hypersonic missile, supposed to be, uh, it was not uh, supposed to be uh, destructed. So, uh, Because we, we, we remember, Craig Kapitas, uh, when they were uh, brought out on Red Square a few years back and they were saying, you know, these are, these are unstoppable missiles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the Russian the Russian military has always been a victim of its own PR. They, they make they make a lot of stuff. They make big stuff, but it's really not very good stuff. You're right. uh, and what they do in battle is they throw stuff at you. I mean, I mean, you know, the, 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 when one army might send a hundred tanks that are really great, the Russians will throw, for sake of argument, five hundred tanks at you that you can take out with a bow and arrow, and they say, "Look how strong we are." That's how the Russian military has always operated, and they have no chain of command. Yeah, but there's another battle behind this um, on the ground between Ukraine and Russia. The Patriot uh, system, anti-missile, um, anti-aerial Patriot system, is being sold world over, over a billion, over a billion dollars apiece. Um, if it can be taken down, if it's not invincible, there will be a reconsideration for further purchases in the future. Uh, and there is the same thing with the Kinzhal. Uh, it's being tested as well. And, um, and uh, uh, we don't know what happened, if it really was taken down or not. Uh, we don't know. The Americans said there was some damage. Uh, but we don't know actually what happened. But every site... Raytheon on the American side and uh, whoever is making the, the, the Russian missiles are watching what is happening and perfectioning their systems, that's of for course. sure. And that is also what is going on in this mm. war. But Russia is not in a state to perfection uh, anything <laughs> because uh, it lacks, for example, a lot of things uh, to, to, uh, to um, make the, 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 the ammunition, the, the tanks and the, the missiles. So this is well documented. And uh, uh, what uh, we know for sure is that uh, uh, the Patriot was not so much damaged. Uh, it, it, they the, say it's the, still the, operational. They it's say still, it's still operational, operational because it was the Carrier uh, that mm. was damaged, not the. the I think the everyone's making way, way too much about <laughs> yeah. this. 
there's a war going on, you know, and things get blown up. And Patriot missile batteries occasionally might get blown up. Even the best of tanks get blown up. But there's there's the the deeper problem, this sort of mission creep issue. Uh, Matthias Krupa had, we've seen, and just Olaf Scholz at the uh, at the, at the at the at the current G7 summit, he's he's all in. It sounds like this isn't this is no longer kind of hedging the, uh, as as before. No, I think how do Germans feel about that? <laughs> No, no, that's that, that's a good question. So, so far, the so far the management maybe it was uh, sometimes underestimated um, uh, what Scholz did because with his uh, cautious, I call it cautious, others call it uh, hesitating, but with his cautious way of uh, of conducting this uh, this discussion and uh, um, taking decisions, he assured that the country or a majority in the country is still behind. Uh, the government it is still behind uh, the the um, uh, um, the deployment of arms uh, to uh, to so Germans to, like to it when you move methodically. But uh, as Craig was stating, uh, it, wars happen in real time. Yeah, wars is happening in real time. But I mean, the good news from the G7 uh, is that apparently there is they are now on the same they are on the same uh, line and they are on the same uh, page. They have. Um, they have the same communication. This time they let Biden uh, the lead. They gave Biden the lead. There was no premature um, communication from Macron, from from one other. So, honestly, I have the... My impression is they learned a lot about um, sticking together their coalition, sticking together their efforts and communicating in a, in a much more reliable way than in the past. What if you looked at it from uh, the other side of the world? If you hear uh, news in English, actually, because I don't understand the other languages, but in India, in Singapore, um, China, not interesting, but many places you hear talking about this G7 meeting as the post-Western world that is taking yeah. place and the West trying to still, the, mi the Western minorities still trying to rule the world and dictate its rules to the rest Except of the world. Except it's being hosted in Japan and uh, Prime Minister Kishida was in Kiev on the day when Xi Jinping and was in wouldn't Moscow. wouldn't you, in geopolitical terms, uh, put Japan and, by the way, South Korea in uh, the Western minority, as the Indians might say, or the Singaporeans might say. I remember, I remember distinctly, it was like day two of the war, and the Japanese ambassador to Kiev put on his family's samurai outfit, <laughs> and he stood up, and they took a picture, and he said, come on, Russia, mess with me. <laughs> now, that's what you call gutsy. <laughs> you're, you're, you're quite right with the post-Western world. Um, I'm not. But, but I'm not saying. I'm not talking. Not embracing that theory. I'm just no, no. saying what. What. But the, the leaders of India looking at us. Leaders of India, Brazil, they, they were invited. Uh, but for, the, but the question behind this post-Western world is if the West is not not any longer the majority. Who is the majority? There is no majority there in this post-Western world. Is there, is, there is a, there's a, shift. a shift, but there yeah. is no majority. And then secondly, they're saying, and the West is uh, doing is being totally hypocritical because. Uh, 
hypocrisy is uh, saying Europeans saying they don't purchase any more oil from uh, Russia, but they do actually, and um, and saying that uh, they don't um, accept to to you know any any trade with Russia, but they do still have, and it's going up, and so is the United States, and we know that some of the things that are in the sections go through via Turkey or via Kazakhstan into into Russia, uh, and there is at the same time. A mm. whole other problem, just to well, put it in money. the picture, the dollars, yeah. the, 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 the world is getting away from the dollar. So there is so <laughs> many things so going funny. out. I mean, in this it's so funny because if you, if you look carefully at the situation, you see that now Russia is selling a lot of oil to India. India has become, has become a big, big, big yeah. uh, buyer of oil. Mm. And they decided because uh, they are against the dollar. So they, are, they decided to trade with their currencies. Mm. So now we have Russia with a lot of rupees. But what is Russia going to do with the rupees? This is a problem, the main problem. You there can is, say um, that American, yeah. no to the American, no to the Western world. No. They are decadent, they are finished. But their it's money, not a question of opinion the, the oil, here. The oil, I'm not the making gas, an opinion. everything I, is, is uh, trading. I'm not, I'm not giving the, an opinion the, and saying if the, I'm for it, yes. I'm saying so, you have to take uh, watch sure, it sure. and put it in the picture. Sure, this but element it's not real. It's, it's not real. Yeah, you know, the BRICS, uh, which means trend. Brazil, Russian, India and China and South Africa, this summer are going to have a summit and in this summit yes. they're going to launch uh, counter... But explain to me what um, is BRIC exactly? What do they do? They don't even have between themselves some tax accommodation or some uh, rules for trade. They have nothing. They are not they like European nothing. Union, that's for sure, but yes. there are 27 countries asking to yeah, be part yeah, of the BRICS. Yeah, it's a good picture. So you <laughs> have course. to take, you can have an opinion and that's It's only PR. But you have it's only to PR, have yeah, like you said you have to, about As Russia. a historian, you have to really watch what's of going course, on in the world. Well, you we get, to, get those rupees, you sell them to the Saudis for a discount, okay? They reinvest those rupees in India, follow the money. Where's the center of power? His name is Mohammed bin Salman. He's got the bank account. He's got cash. All right, there are Ukrainians risking, uh, by the way, their lives for their livelihoods. France 24's Catherine Norris Trent and Yohan Baudin spoke with one farmer who's plowing a field that's potentially mined. This is uh, near Zaporizhia. He can't afford to go another planting season without sowing his crops. So there you see him up in his tractor. Now, the good news for that farmer is that in between rounds of uh, Turkey's presidential election, incumbent Recep Tayyip Erdogan announcing a two-month rollover of the grain deal that allows both warring parties uh, to ship food and fertilizer via the Black Sea. It's been a good week for Erdogan. Yes, he's forced into a runoff, which is a first for Turkey under its new presidential system. But with 49.5% of the vote, he proved the polls wrong and went to bed last Sunday night magnanimous. If our nation has made its choice in favor of the second round of the election, then that is also welcome. We strongly believe that we will continue to serve our nation for the next five years. Marie Jego, uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, uh, he, uh, uh, some had even predicted that uh, he, he would be out in the first round. What happened? Yeah, very strange indeed. The, the polls were completely wrong. Like uh, eight uh, out of uh, ten polls were uh, saying what you said, that uh, he, he was going to be done uh, at uh, the first round, 
but in fact, uh, probably defeating him uh, in a system which favors him structurally and uh, uh, institu institutionally uh, has proven very difficult. For just one, just one example, uh, six weeks before the, the election, on TV, Erdogan got airtime for uh, 48 hours, Kilic Darolu, 32 minutes. That is correct. 80 hours to 32 on TRT Haber. Look, let's be truthful, not neutral. <laughs> Erdogan is a dictator. Dictators do not lose elections. The political scientists will say what Tayyip does is called competitive authoritarianism. It's actually a style of government. A hybrid, it's a hybrid theocratic organism, okay, and it rules by decree, and it self-legitimizes itself through these problematic elections. Now, this is what Tayyip, I mean, Erdogan has done for years. He's a master of it. He creates boogeymen, whether it's Feto or the Kurds. I mean, the Kurds have always been the boogeyman there. Always. And, and when you figure that tw some 25% of the country is rural, can't say it on TV, but we will, peasants, that's what they are. He pays them off, and they're very happy. So that's the reality. What's his trump card? He's a member of NATO, so we have to be nice. If the opposition's going to pull off a miracle, it'll take a lot of campaign promises uh, in a short amount of time from his opponent. And with the nationalist far right surging in that first round, the center-left leader, uh, Kamal Kilic-Darolu, turning his focus on the 3.6 million Syrian refugees living in Turkey. In the run-up to the new elections on the 28th of May, I would like to address my compatriots. Do you know, if they stay in power, 10 million more refugees will arrive in Turkey. I repeat, 10 million more refugees will arrive in Turkey. I announce it to you here. I will send all the refugees home as soon as I come to power. Period. Anna Navarro Pedro. How can he? How many million refugees in Turkey? 3.5 million? 3.6 million Syrians. 3.6 million? It's, um, it's demagogy, demagogic. Uh, to say that, on top of it, uh, Assad, uh, in, we didn't talk about it, but in, um, in, uh, uh, in the Arab League summit, he's saying that, okay, take the refugees and back, only if you pay for, you know, for, uh, uh, so he's doing, saying that actually to the, to the Gulf uh, countries. So this is, um, this is um, just as bad as paying off as Erdogan saying that he's uh, doubling the salaries of uh, all um, civil servants in uh, Turkey right now. It's, um, it's panic. I find, I find it very bitter as well, but um, to be honest, if he wins with this move, all of us will be happy <laughs> because you, you have to. You have. To, I mean, the logic. Once again, I don't. I'm. I'm, I'm not in favor of uh, of what he's doing there. But um, the logic is: if you want to be the demagogue, you have to be demagogic. So yeah. that's yep. that's the logic behind. The irony. It's really bitter. The, ir the irony of all of this is that I, I, I'm. Years ago, I had a long talk with, with Erdogan about, about this issue of the refugees. And, and for all his political phoniness and posturing and strongmanism, he actually does honestly feel that his, it's his responsibility 
to take care of these people. And he, he almost went into tears when we were talking. And we weren't on camera, by the way. Uh, he, he really believes this is his duty as, as, as a human being, and he's very serious about it. And uh, he has, because of his strongman tactics, he has convinced a majority of the Turkish population that this is their duty too. So you got to give the guy credit where credit is due, and I think that's where he's due it. By the way, coincidence of the calendar across the agency, they're also in campaign mode. Incumbent uh, Kyriakos Mitsotakis in an interview with German Daily Bild talking up a wall to keep out the migrants. And even though he wants the EU to pay for it, the uh, conservative uh, leader uh, refuting uh, analogies uh, with, with Donald Trump. Uh, Marie Jago, your, your thoughts on this, that, you know, when push comes to shove, uh, as they say in the movie The Big Short, blame immigrants. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I don't know. I don't know what to say about this uh, trading uh, migrants uh, issue. It's it has been going on for quite a while. Yeah. Even in Berlusconi times uh, already, he was dealing with Gaddafi, remember, to stop uh, migrants and refugees from coming right. across. Uh, I mean, uh, it's been going on with the total hypocrisy from European yeah. Union. When Mrs. Merkel opened up the borders of Germany to allow all the refugees, I think the rest of Europe just went in shock, <laughs> especially the, the, the leaders. Yeah. Uh, in Greece is a big problem because it's like in Italy, it's also in Greece. They get the, bl the blunt of uh, the brunt of the arrival of migrants. They have to deal with mm -hmm. it. And the rest of you are saying, do your job, do your job. And cleaning their hands and washing their hands from that. Mm. I mean, that's how Milani came to power in, in Italy. And uh, that's also one of the problems, not the only one, but one of the yeah. problems in Greece as well. Europe is a hypocritical <laughs> institution. The, the interesting thing about what you just said, Francois, about the immigrants, there is one fascinating angle to this Greek election that I think all of Europe should take note of. 16-year-olds are allowed to vote in Greece in this election. Uh. And there are 440,000 of them. So if the youth vote has any power, and if the youth, as we all believe, is more liberal, then this thing should swing, you know, to either Syriza or Pasak or some kind of goofy coalition. But we'll see. Yeah, Greece's economy has outperformed the rest of the Eurozone of late. But inequality within Greece is rife, and all candidates are conscious of the state's failings on welfare and infrastructure in those years that followed the financial crisis. I hope that my next four years will be uh, years of rapid growth um, for Greece, but uh, growth that will also uh, limit uh, uh, inequalities and make sure that we focus on supporting those who are more vulnerable. With honesty and with an open heart, we ask the Greek people, not for a second chance to govern, but for the first chance to govern on the basis of our program on the basis of what we want to do and not what we have to do. Without memoranda, without coercion, without the Troika, without Shabal, without all those who impose their policies on us. 
the, the former prime minister still remembers uh, <laughs> Angela Merkel's finance minister, Wolfgang Schäuble. How could they forget it? Unforgotten in Greece. I was remembering, uh, look, look in, uh, looking at the pictures, I was, I was remembering that I was covering the, com the first campaign of, uh, of Mr. Tsipras uh, at the time of the, Euro, of the Euro crisis. And I mean, this is maybe the good news in this campaign that compared to the to 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 um, to the campaigns uh, and to the elections during the euro crisis it it is much more low profile it's much more the importance of this election be it uh, be it a conservative win be it a Syriza win um, it's not as dramatic as it was uh, ten years uh, ten years ago so maybe there's some kind of normalization in the Greece in the Greek politics mm. before we go. He wanted to clear his conscience before it was too late. A 98-year-old retired rail worker revealing where his unit of the French resistance on June the 8th, 1944, took 47 captured German soldiers to a small wooded area near a village in central France, forced them to dig their own graves, shot them, and covered their remains with quicklime. Edmond Réveil uncovering a dark chapter that had long been suspected but never openly admitted. June the 8th, 1944, is two days after the Allies landed at D-Day, as the resistance was fighting ferociously to liberate the nearby city of Tulle, and two days before the SS slaughtered 643 villagers in the village of Ouradour-sur-Glane. They gave us the order to kill them, and the captain when he told them. He spoke to them one by one. Because he was Alsatian, he spoke good German. He told them they were going to be shot. Each Makizar killed one German. I didn't. There were three or four of us who didn't take part. We refused. Marie-Jégo, the, the last remaining member of that unit, they had started to look in the 1960s and then stopped. And now he's burying his soul. It's very touching that uh, he tries to alleviate uh, his uh, emotional burden and um, although he explains that uh, he himself uh, didn't kill, he, he refused to, to do this and there were three or four guys in his brigade that refused to kill the, the Germans but war is always, uh, is always terrible so it's not so... Uh, surprising that uh, such an event uh, took uh, place. Right after, two days after, I think, uh, there was a hanging of uh, almost 100 civilians in Tulle uh, as a response uh, from the Nazi uh, Germans. So, yes. Yeah, they were hung by, hung by lampposts. I know that, uh, Matthias Kruppe, there's been a lot of coverage in Germany uh, and, and uh, associations uh, thanking him for Absolutely. for... And now the search is on to try to find where uh, they, uh, their remains are. Yeah, I mean, there's now a common in initiative from the French government and together, not with the German government, but with an organization who takes care about the, the, the graves uh, of, the, of the soldiers in the, in the world wars in Germany, the so-called famous uh, Volksbund Kriegsgräber für Sorge. Um, and I think this is really good news that... Things like this are now done together, and um, that we have the that we are at a at a moment where we can deal together, and we, we have a common stance on this uh, on a common approach on this uh, on this chapter of uh, of our past. Um, 
So yes, indeed, there was a there was a lot of coverage in Germany. And of our Pedro reminder that, and of course, we're looking at this through the prism of the fact that the attention on this continent is on the the war in Ukraine right now. Mm -hmm. That uh, in the name of a good cause, people do horrible things. Absolutely, and this is war. And this is uh, this is war. And I have uh, narratives of people lived the war, either in the camps or during the war. And uh, it's not black or white as the media nowadays try to uh, portray it. A war is never black or white. And in these cases of resistance, also that the French resistance that uh, is um, maybe going through uh, some sort of uh, another lecture, uh, because um, first, this is French historian Michel V. Viorca. He said that the French resistance and all the resistances always go through three stages. First, there is the legend of the hero, the ones who resisted. Then there is the legend of the victim. Some, at some point in history, start looking at the ones who were shot at their hands. Um, and uh, and then later we say comes the the era of suspicion and we must be aware of that era. It's uh, suspicion can only come if we believe that uh, um, everything can be white on the, the side of the winner and black on the side of the loser. It's not war. You have men and women with hands with guns on their hands and no law above them except for the orders they receive. This was a direct order from a general, this gentleman said, was from General Koenig, uh, who gave the order of shooting these, um, these soldiers because there was no one to take care of prisoners of war, actually. And this was the decision taken. Um, that's, that's war for you. And uh, trying to show it going into the, into, you know, having, like I remember an American journalist, sorry, going and uh, seeing uh, United States bombing some country in Middle East and saying, this is beautiful, those beautiful missiles. Jack Tepper, not to mention him. I mean, I just, uh, I just say it's impossible. It's impossible to show war in this way to our uh, readers and our um, um, Craig Capitas, that justification that uh, Anna was talking about, that uh, they, they couldn't keep the prisoners, so the order came to, to shoot them. Right. And this story will be cackled into propaganda by Russian television over the next 48 hours. They will come down mm. on the West like a ton of bricks over this. <laughs> War crimes! Nothing yeah. happened in Bucha. Remember... In war, it's the victors who write the history books. Okay. I believe it was Napoleon who said that. But maybe, but, but, but maybe we Could have been should not Hitler. look at each and every news uh, today through the, through the lenses of the, of the Russian war, of the Russian propaganda. I mean, this is, as you said, this is it, a touching story in itself. It's a touching story, and there's uh, another war that we still don't talk about in this country, which is uh, Algeria's bloody battle for, for independence, or very rarely. Uh, those who lived through it, their generation is dying out. They don't talk much about what happened there, Malishekou. Yes, and we, we see some uh, recently, for example, some journalists uh, telling us that... Um, for, Certainly, Mr. Le Pen was not uh, torturing uh, Algerians uh, in Algeria. This uh, news uh, went on some weeks ago. <laughs> so <laughs> It's going to hurt Mr. Le Pen. Uh, so re revisionism uh, on, <laughs> on, on, on what, what happened there. On the uh, main radio, uh, French radio station, it was said like this. 
the Germans have been great at uh, examining their own past. W what are your thoughts, Matthias, on how the French have examined this? Again, it's one chapter of uh, what happened uh, during a war. I want to come in a position as a German to judge about other, other countries dealing with, the, with their past. Yes, even the yeah you, you said it the the the, the story of the of a, of a war is written by the by the victors and not by the victims um but the more time the more the time passes the more the victims have their voice in it and, and the, the good news is and the, that you only see this happening in a democracy yeah that's you're it. not going to see it in russia Absolutely. you're not going to see it in Turkey. You're not going to see it in Saudi Arabia. It comes down to the basic fact is that, yeah, democracy is really messy and argumentative, but you know something? It actually kind of works at the end of the day. It's right. not really surprising that things like that happened at that time, even if we are talking about war crimes. Yeah. We'll have to leave it there for now. I want to thank you uh, very much, uh, Matthias Krupa. I want to thank uh, Marie Jigo, Anna Navarro, Pedro, Craig Kapitas. Thank you for being with us here in the world this week. The world